Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, today to Genesis 19. Lessons from Sodom. We get to get culturally controversial and biblically unambiguous today. Last time we were together in Genesis 18, Abraham confronted the Lord regarding the direction that he and these other two men were headed following the Lord's promise to Abraham and Sarah regarding Sarah having a child. Following this, the Lord determined to tell Abraham what they were going to do next, going down to Sodom to see if the cry of their sin was as severe as it seemed and then dealing with it through judgment. Abraham then stood before the Lord, the Bible tells us, and appealed for the city, whether this was specifically because of his nephew Lot, whom he had already rescued from the evil choices of Sodom once, or whether Abraham's concern went beyond his nephew toward the people in the city, maybe others he knew, maybe just the people in general. We can't be completely sure, uh, though we would certainly presume that his nephew was the strongest uh, compulsion here. And Abraham appealed to the Lord that if there were but 10 righteous in the whole of the city of Sodom, that God would not just spare those 10, because God always uh, spares the righteous from the sin of the wicked and the judgment of that sin. Uh, the judge of all the earth will do right. That's what we talked about last week. But that God would not only spare those 10 righteous, but that, that the righteous would, would be sufficient to intercede, that God would spare the whole of the city on behalf of those 10 righteous, buying them more time to repent if, if only they would repent. And so Abraham starts at 50, works him down to 10, and Abraham leaves off at 10, and Abraham goes back to his tents, and the Lord and um, these other men go and continue along their way. And thus we move into Genesis 19. The Bible says in verses 1 and 2, And there came two angels to Sodom at even. And Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, and Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and rise up early, and go on your ways. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. So the Bible tells us that at, evening, at, at, at the evening, uh, presumably the same evening that Abraham uh, had them there that day, uh, two angels came to Sodom. Now, perhaps we make a measure of inference here. There were three men that sat with Abraham on that day, and we know that one of those men was the Lord. We would presume, based upon our study going back to Genesis 16, that that was the angel of the Lord. Uh, the other two men, it would perhaps be natural then to assume, are these angels, that the, the Lord uh, re returned from whence he came, and that these two angels continued on uh, into the city to fulfill the commission that had been given unto them. Either way, however, uh, these are two angels. Uh, it is clear that they appear to be men, that they look like men, and they come and they enter toward the gate of the city at evening, and as they do so, Lot, uh, Abraham's nephew Lot, is sitting in the gate. Now, throughout the Bible, we will see this idea of sitting in the gates of the cities. And the gate was the place in the city where all the business happened. If you uh, look at any uh, ancient pictures of, of um, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, of cities that they, archaeological digs, uh, tells that they're digging up, uh, one of the things that you'll find is that a gate was not simply um, a, a gate as we think of it today, like you'd have on your uh, fence to your backyard. Uh, a gate was a large area that had multiple rooms. This was the place of commerce. This was the place of judgment. This was the place where the people that were important in the city went to do the business of the city. The merchants went there. The judges went there. The elders went there. The decision-making happened there. The gate of the city was like the, the, the town hall. It was the, it was the place where everybody congregated to do the things within the city. And so we find that Lot was sitting there. Now, a good expression of this, uh, to see this, this picture of what the, the sitting in the gates of the city meant within this culture is actually found in Proverbs 31, as Proverbs talk about the virtuous woman. In Proverbs 31, verses 22 and 23, the Bible says this about the virtuous woman. She maketh herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sitteth among the elders of the land. So uh, the virtuous woman is a woman who facilitates her husband's success. We see that all throughout Proverbs 31. And this success is, is uh, expressed in several ways in Proverbs 31. And one of those ways is that her husband is known in the gates 
And this is the implication there is given in, in the next phrase, when he sitteth among the elders of the land. Sitting among the elders of the land was what you did when you sat in the gates because that is where the elders of the land came to discuss the things as it related to the land of the city and, and of such. Uh, to this end, we understand then that Lot, if he was sitting in the gate of the city, he was not just a guy in Sodom, but that he was a guy who had a measure of influence in the city. He was a guy who had some position, some standing within the city of Sodom. He had worked his way into some measure of influence, if not power, within that city. So Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom, and he sees these two men arriving at evening time, and he knows what this means. Culturally, it was not uncommon for men to sleep out in the streets as they were traveling through a land. But that being said, if you could get yourself to a city, and you see this all throughout the judges, you see this in various places of hospitality, uh, what they would do is they would travel from city, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they would go and they would find a place to stay for the night in, a, in, in some sort of inn or in somebody's house necessarily, but they wanted to get to the city because if they could at least get to the city, well, at night, the gates of the city closed, and that was for the protection of the people of the city while everyone slept. So if you could get to a city, you get inside the walls, the gates close, and you are able to sleep more safely. You're safe from animals. You're safe from malicious humans. From the, you, you, can, you can take your evening repose. And even if you're sleeping just in the streets, you're sleeping uh, on, on a, a bale of hay somewhere, whatever it might be, you are safe because you're the city That gate is closed for the night. Turns out that walls have always been a good way to regulate what and who should or should not come into a designated place. Turns out they knew this even 4,000 years ago. So these men approach the gate, and Lot does the same thing that we saw Abraham do, characteristic Eastern hospitality. He bows himself with his face toward the ground, and he invites them to come into his house for the evening, offering to wash their feet. Then they could arise early, and they could be on their way. And to this, the men refuse. They insist that it's sufficient for them to sleep in the streets for the night. They will not bother Lot. And again, typically, this is fine. When a man is within the walls of the city, he is safe. He can sleep on the street. No big deal. The hospitality is, is right, and it is good, and it's a wonderful thing. But it's not necessary, per se. A lot of times, they might have food with them. They just eat a little bit of that food along the path, and all was well and good. They just get up and go the next day as soon as the gates of the city opened. However, Lot knew better. He knows that they are actually not at all safe within the walls of that city that the least safe place to be after dark would be locked within the walls of Sodom, but not locked within the doors of one of its houses. But of course, the men are not supposed to know this, obviously. Uh, they, they're there for a different commission, uh, but they're not supposed to know this. Lot would presume that they did not know this. They are acting as if they would not know this. And so there's a bit of a struggle that ensues between whether or not they uh, accept this hospitality and Lot was determined to win that struggle. So we read in verse three, and he pressed upon them greatly and they turned in unto him and entered into his house and he made them a feast and did break unleavened bread and they did eat, a bake, excuse me, unleavened bread and they did eat. So Lot urges them to accept and they eventually do accept they turn into his house, they eat together, and for that time, all is well. But then, as we know, things go bad. Verses 4 and 5. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came in to thee this night? Bring them out unto us that we may know them." So before the men of the city can lie down for the night, the men of Sodom surround. And the Bible says that it's men from every quarter, old and young. So we're not just talking about a group of men, a subset of the city. We are talking about a collective of the men in the city, that this is something that the city as a whole is doing here. It is not just, uh, well, there's that one weird group in the, in the far corner of the city and stay down there. It's not that at all. It's young and old. It's from all quarters of the city. And they call out to Lot, who obviously they, knew, they all knew very well. Lot had lived there for quite some time at this point. And they demand that Lot send these men out to be raped by them. Verses six through eight. And Lot went out at the door unto them and shut the door after them. And he said, 
I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Behold, now I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out to you, and do ye unto them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing, for therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. So Lot opens the door, he goes out the door, and then he closes the door behind him. So now you have the door, and you have Lot, and then you have the men who are in front of Lot, and he is between the door of his house and these men who want to rape the men that are inside the house. And he appeals to the men that they would not do this wicked thing, that they would not forcibly rape these men who were his guests of the city and of his house. He tells them that to do so would be to do wickedly. And then Lot does something that we would all regard in our modern minds and Christian sensibilities to be absolutely appalling. He offers them his two unmarried and so virgin daughters in replacement. He says, I'll bring them out to you and you do to them whatever you want. Just don't do anything to these men who have come under my roof. So we need to talk about this. And we're going to talk a little bit more about Lot next week. We're going to consider more about Lot uh, in verses um, 14 and, and following. 14 to 30 next week, I believe. This week's lessons are from Sodom. Next week's lessons are from Lot. But let's take some time to talk about this. Because there's probably more happening here than just the character and choices of Lot himself. First, we establish without question that Lot is not in agreement with what is happening here. He is not in agreement with these men. He is not in agreement with their perversions. He tells them that they, what they are doing is wickedness. He might, we might presume that the whole reason why Lot was so insistent upon them coming into the house, those two men coming into the house, was to protect them from the wickedness of the men around them. Uh, the Bible doesn't say that, but I've already made that assumption and presumption, and I think it's fairly safe to do so, that the reason why Lot was so urgent to get them into the house was because he did not want these men to become victims of the perversion and wickedness of Sodom. And again, we'll talk more about that uh, when we talk about Lot, but there is something that we need to establish about Lot from the Scriptures, that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Lot was a righteous man. Lot was not a man that the Bible considers perverse, or wicked, the Bible calls him a just and a righteous man. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 8. We're into a parenthetical here, but it'll accomplish our purpose. For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. And this is speaking of Lot, just Lot who was delivered from the judgments of Sodom. And he is called a righteous man dwelling among them and that his righteous soul was vexed from day to day. So the first thing that we need to lay out here is that while Lot was doing this thing is indeed objectively appalling, he is not simply a man who is absolutely overcome and subverted by the culture that is around him and so that has no moral compass. There's something else going on here. We're compelled to believe that Lot is not just a terrible, evil, and utterly immoral man. There's more going on. And that doesn't mean that Lot's decision is not appalling particularly to our sensibilities, but, in, but objectively appalling. As parents, as those who live under the cultural heritage of a Christian ethic, we recognize it to be so. But it also means that we need to be careful to the extent that we judge this man on this day, and the fact that we would be hesitant to judge Lot in his day does not make it hypocritical to judge us in our day by a different standard. Or by the same standard, but also understand that we don't necessarily know all the circumstances that... That, that were there at that time. Instead, this is an opportunity to remember once again that not everyone in the world thinks the way we think and that not every situation or decision is easily discernible through a few verses of historical narrative and that many factors other than pure evil can compel actions which we understand to be evil today. And if you and I can grasp this idea, it will help us not just relate ourselves to the history of, of the Bible, but relate ourselves to history in general in a balanced and significantly more just way. Say, Pastor, I don't really understand what you're getting at here. Well, let's use the modern American cultural boondoggle of slavery to kind of explain this idea. We're in a culture who violently ejected slavery from our culture between 1860 and 1865 through the American Civil War. Slavery had been understood as a general moral evil 
for some time well before the Civil War, and it was a source of much contention from the early days of the United States. In 1787, the United States Congress outlawed new slavery in the Northwest Territories. Around that same year, the Society for the Abolition of the Slave Trade was founded in Great Britain. In 1808, the import and export of slaves became a crime in the United States. In 1817, Britain and Spain signed an agreement abolishing the slave trade. In 1818, Britain and Portugal did the same. In 1820, slavery was banned north of the Mason-Dixon line in the United States, and the maritime slave trade became punishable by death. In 1835, Britain and France, Britain and Denmark also signed those agreements to abolish the slave trade, and so on and so forth. We could trace throughout the entire 1800s. So the trend toward abolishing slavery in the West was not new because slavery had been seen as an objective evil for many years at that point. But the situation in the United States was somewhat unique, historically. First, because the states had voluntarily entered into a union, and so many felt that they had the right to voluntarily dissolve that union if they so chose. Second, because loyalty at that time was significantly more upon a state than it was a country. Nowadays, uh, really since World War I and II, the sentiment of a, a, a United States, that the loyalty is to the United States is very, very high. But at that time, if, if you ask someone wh what they were, they would not say a, 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 an American, they would not say a United States citizen, they'd say a Virginian, a Pennsylvanian. That's what they would say because that's where their loyalties lied, lay. And third, because the nation's industry was strongly divided by region, so that the economy of the North was not dependent upon slave labor. It was easier for them to yield the moral to the moral pressure to abolish it, whereas the economy of the South was quite dependent upon slave labor, and so it was more difficult for them to be persuaded. On top of this, there were various laws that were happening at the times, tariffs and such, that were helping the North states while disproportionately hurting the Southern states and such. And so there was a great deal of tension happening that goes well beyond just slavery's bad, right? And what this means is that there was just a lot more going on than just, is it bad, is it good? Some men are evil and some men are good. It's much more complicated than that. Well, the men in the South were evil, they loved slavery, and the men in the North weren't, they didn't. Much more complicated than that, right? While it can be objectively stated that the treatment of another human being is property, rather than conferring upon him the dignity of humanity, is objectively morally evil. That does not mean that every man who lived in the South, even every man who owned slaves, or every man who fought for the states that seceded due to their desire to keep those slaves, was an evil man. Or was even making the decision in context which we could say is an objectively evil decision. It's well known that Robert E. Lee was offered to be the general of the North, but he chose the South because he wanted to fight not for slavery, but for his state, for his family, for his people, for the people that were his own, right? There were other reasons why men fought. And so as people take a sledgehammer to, the, to all of history and tear down monuments and everything, they're doing so on this very, very short-sighted idea that slavery bad, people slavery, people bad. And we could do the same thing here with Lot. Giving daughters bad. Sodom bad. Lot bad. But Lot was a righteous man and a just man. That doesn't mean he made all righteous decisions. And we can part that too. While we regard the offer that Lot had here of his daughters to these men to be objectively evil, that doesn't mean that Lot is objectively evil or that he had evil intent or even that the reasons why he offered them were compelled by evil. Lot was put into a terrible circumstance here, a natural consequence of him living in a wicked place. We'll talk more about that next week. But there are some reasons other than just evil why Lot might have done this thing. In Eastern mind, hospitality is the greatest obligation one can have. For these men to be harmed while under Lot's care would be regarded as a wickedness far greater than that of giving his daughters to these men. Indeed, women were not dignified in the way that 
um, that Christianity has dignified women. And so the, the idea, the sensibility of being able to do so was one that was not as heavy upon the mind of a father or of a man in their culture. Perhaps this reason, as Lot weighed and determined the evil of these men that were in the city, he saw giving his daughters as an evil of much lesser consequence than giving these men to them. It's also possible that knowing these men to be sodomites, homosexuals, he felt confident that they would not be interested in his daughters, which actually was true. They had absolutely no interest in his daughters. Anytime we attempt to impose such nuance upon history, we never do it to excuse the actions of those in history, nor do we do it to imply that we too could commit such an action and be guiltless. But if I may say it this way, if God were to do a great work after the overturning of Roe v. Wade and the ability for uh, the decision for uh, abortions to fall back onto the states rather than to be um, imposed upon the nation by judicial fiat, if that, that, that decision over the course of the next 50 years works to where, it's already saved thousands upon thousands of babies' lives, but if it, if it works itself out to where finally people catch up to the, the, the reality of the barbaric nature of abortion in our culture, so that we finally get to the place where, uh, as a general rule, abortion is once again outlawed as, as a barbarism and as something that is, is what it is. God forbid that in a hundred years, history would look back upon every single person in our culture and say they were all barbarians for what happened in their culture, for the hundreds and hundreds of thousands. We can say, I hope they do say, that was a barbaric thing. But also recognize that not everybody, everybody's motivation for maybe passing a, a, a law that kind of I was going to say split the baby, but that pun may be a little bit uh, wrong for the, or that, or that, 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 that uh, illustration may be wrong for this idea. Uh, one that compromises a little bit to move the ball forward. Say, well, they, just, they didn't move the ball forward enough. Well, God forbid. See, we're, we're in a time where we're fighting a battle, right? Where there's sensibilities and there's things and you've got to move the ball forward and you take a step forward and then, they, and then, then, then you lose some ground and you gain some ground. God forbid that we should be judged simply on a yes or no, in or out, evil or not, among a culture that has finally purged that evil from their society. That's what I'm trying to say here. May it compel us to give the same grace to those in history that we would hope the future would give to us. That though we may make decisions which are considered in their day wrong and backward and unthinkable, Yet they can understand that though the we made decisions that they may consider in their day to be wrong, backward, unthinkable, yet we can understand or they could understand that the cultural context is not their own and that maybe the battles that we're fighting today aren't the battles that they'll be fighting tomorrow. And maybe the understanding of doctrine or of culture that we have today needs to be corrected by their tomorrow and that's okay. The fact that we didn't correct it in our day maybe because we had other things to correct. Maybe we were fighting other battles. Maybe there were more pressing issues at hand. And they'll look and say, why didn't they fight that battle in their day? Why didn't the church of a generation past fight the battle that I'm fighting today? Because that wasn't their battle then. That's, their, that, that's my battle. That's not their battle. They had another battle to fight. Now, it doesn't mean that we aren't men and women who desire to do what's right. It just means that we can't do everything. And no one can. Okay, so all of that to say, Lot makes this terrible, appalling offer. We, get, we, we recognize that. We continue then in the text, verse 9. And they said, stand back, this would be the people. And they said, again, this one fellow came in to sojourn, and he will needs be a judge. Now will we deal worse with thee than with them? And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lawton came near to break the door. So the people are not interested in his offer of his daughters. Uh, good. They tell Lot to get out of the way, and they accuse Lot of morally judging them by standing between them and this evil. And this is a standard human reaction to sin. They say, this man was a, a sojourner among us. He's a stranger. He's not even one of us. He comes in. He lives in our city. He sojourns in our city. And now he presumes to be, become our judge, to judge our way of doing things, to judge our way of thinking. 
Very standard human idea. Sin loves company. Sin is always exposed by light of moral obedience and clarity. And even simply refusing to engage in a sin with another will seem in the heart of that person to be judgment against them. A sinful man will feel guilty sinning in the presence of a righteous man. When a person chooses to do what's right or name sin for what it is, even if there's no moral judgment involved, it is simply a statement of fact. Those that are engaged in that sin will feel as though they are being judged. And indeed, a society of wickedness always takes a predictable trajectory as it relates to sin. The first thing that they always demand is they always demand toleration of their sin. And if you don't tolerate their sin, you're judging them. Then once you tolerate their sin, then they demand that you accept their sin. And if you do not accept their sin, then you're judging them. And then once you accept their sin, then they demand that you celebrate their sin. And if you do not celebrate their sin, then you're judging them. And then once you celebrate their sin, they demand you participate in their sin. And if you do not participate in their sin, then they judge you. Because at that point, they have the power. <laughs> so at that point, then they come down on you and they judge you harshly. And this is the way it always goes. That's what we're seeing in our culture today as well. So they call Lot an outsider who came to sojourn among them, who was then attempting to elevate himself above them as their judge. The irony to this being that Lot was, in fact, sitting in the gate, which means he probably did have some measure of authority by which to judge them. But these men weren't interested in that at this time. So they tell Lot that since he will not move aside, they will do worse to him than they were going to do to the other men, and then they press upon him to rape him. Verses 10 through 13. But the men put forth their hand and pulled Lot into the house to them and shut the door, and shut to the door. And they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they, were, that, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. And the men said unto Lot, Hast thou here any besides, son-in-law, and thy sons, and thy daughters? And whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the cry of them is waxen great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So these two men pull Lot into the house, they shut the door, and then as they are angels, the Bible says that they smote the men of the city with blindness, so that the men of the city could not find the door." So while those men are outside blind, groping for the door and reassessing their life choices, the two angels tell Lot the reason for their presence. They tell him that they were sent there to verify the wickedness of the city and that the Lord was thus, it having been verified, going to destroy the city in short order. To that end, they needed to get, he needed to get himself and his family out of the city immediately because it was about to be destroyed. And as we'll see next week, the angels cannot fulfill their commission to destroy immediately the city until the righteous man is pulled out of that city because the judge of all the earth will do right. And this is where we stop the narrative for this week. We'll pick up next time with Lot a gathering his family and seeking to escape the city and the judgment of the city itself. But as we leave our exposition for this week, we do so having uh, learned everything we need about Sodom itself for us to draw some necessary lessons about them and, of course, for our time as well. Three lessons this morning from Sodom. Lesson number one, sodomy is a perversion of God's design and so is inherently sinful. It's from this passage that we get the term sodomy, which is an older term for that which is now called homosexuality, and sodomy is now a subset of that um, uh, as it relates to, to uh, uh, the various acts of homosexuality, but uh, as a general term, uh, we, we can see them as more or less synonymous. And the character of homosexuality has gone through a very dramatic transformation in our culture in the last 50 years. From something which was understood to be a choice that was made and a sexual perversion, to being something which is culturally understood to be a biological predisposition, born that way, and so a valid societal relationship and a valid lifestyle. I recall uh, I, I, the, I, was, I was a public schooled kid, and that was a huge push in my public school was that, that idea that it is, this is not something, sodomy is not something that is a choice. It is something that uh, is, you're just born that way. You don't have a choice in the matter at all. And the journey to the acceptance of sodomy in society began with creating the cultural pressure to insist 
that sodomy was not a perverse choice, but rather a natural human expression, and that those who are sodomites, because they have no choice in their desires, they are made that way to deny them that which is natural to them is to deny them the fullness of the human expression and a life well lived that everyone has the right to. And indeed, if it were so, that would be true. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But first, we need to lay the biblical groundwork for the truth that sodomy is not a natural sexual expression, but it is, in fact, a perversion that blasphemes the design of God. It blasphemes the image of God and man. And even, as we'll see toward the end, blasphemes the character of the gospel of Christ itself. And we draw this from a multitude of biblical truths. First, we go all the way back. We've studied Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. The Bible says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. So we begin at the very foundation and we build up from there. We understand that God created male and female. He made this binary. He made them distinct. Both are human. Both are spiritual. Both bear the image of God. Both uh, have, have natural human dignity. Both are equal as it relates to human dignity, although different, obviously, in uh, purpose and capability. Both, as we will see, are complementary, but there are, in fact, only two. And they are distinct one from another. We get more information in Genesis 2, verses 23 and 24. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. When Adam was given Eve... He identified her as bone of his bone, of flesh of his flesh. It was established that man would leave father and mother, that he would cleave to his wife, and that they would become one flesh. And it is apparent that men and women are natural principle. This is a biblical design principle. So that there's no question that God did, in fact, intend for men and women to join together. And that is not just for the biological necessity of procreation. It's also a spiritual metaphor. It's a spiritual necessity as well. And just like any aspect of God's design, whether that is male or female or one man or one woman, or even as we learned before about murder, where to take the life of a man unjustly is to blaspheme the image of God in man, we learn that God's design is important. God's design is essential. When, where, where in our lives we align with God's design, we find success. Where we do not, we find a lack of success, and, and, and it is, in fact, perversion. Any breach of God's design is a breach of God's character, and a breach of God's character is inherently, by definition, sin. Now, Genesis 19 is the next insight we have into the sin of Sodom. That's where we are today, whereby we recognize that the sin is so great in the eyes of God that he sends fire and brimstone from heaven to consume the city, which then lends us also to the conclusion that sodomy is, in fact, sinful. Now, we note just briefly that sodomy is also explicitly prohibited in the law of Moses, Leviticus 18, verse 22. Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind it is abomination, this sin being lauded in with things such as bestiality there in Leviticus chapter 18. And while we recognize that we are not in the Christian church under the Mosaic law, we also acknowledge, as Paul says, that the law is not sin. It is holy and it is right and it is good. The law is a reflection of the character of God. It is just not something that the letter of the law is demanded upon us. So we can go to the law first as a schoolmaster for us to understand our own sinful state, but we can also see in the law dramatic recognition of, of God's character. We can understand what, who he is as a God of balance. We can understand the love that God has for distinction. We can understand the nature of God's design. These are all things that we can very rightly and naturally draw from the law of God and of course, Leviticus 18 is not telling us something that we have nowhere else. It is just another reiteration of the same. The thing that we saw in Genesis, the thing which we see in Genesis 19, that it is an abomination to God. Now, from here, we move to the New Testament. In Romans chapter 1, we find Paul expressed the nature of the unbelieving world as it relates to their denial of the authority of God and their insistence of their own way of sinfulness. And of this, we begin reading in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 20, where the Bible says this, For the invisible things of him, that would be of God, 
from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and to four-footed beasts, and to creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up to unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meat. So Paul begins in these verses by stating that the created world proclaims not just that God exists. Yes, we can point to the world around us, the heavens declare the glory of God and see God's fingerprints in it and say, there must be a God that exists because of all the design around us. But Paul says it's not just that the heavens declare the glory of God in that he exists, but Paul says that even God's eternal power and Godhead can be known, that God's power and God's authority are evident in the created world that is around us. So a man who is objectively and rightly looking at creation can know that there is a God in heaven, that there is a moral order by which God created things, and that the one who created that moral order rests outside of that moral order. Therefore, I am accountable to him, not just to myself. All of that is known by simply the created order. No man upon the earth has an excuse as it relates to knowing the, the, the creator or his moral authority and that there is a manner in which they are designed to live. Creation itself testifies of this thing. Paul then goes on to describe the natural outworking of men who reject the person and the authority of God in their lives. They worship the creature rather than the creator. They go, they're going to prop something up to worship. They're going to worship uh, um, some, some piece of stone or wood that's, that's uh, uh, carved into an image like a four-footed beast as, as pagan religions of the past. They're going to worship the environment itself, the sun, the moon, the stars, like the eco-fascist movement of today. They're going to worship government as many people do today, worshiping their government as their God, uh, something which we find today, which is not foreign to history, right? The Pharaoh thought, uh, considered himself a God. Caesar considered himself a God. It's not uncommon for the, for, for, for the king of the land to elevate himself unto a deity status, and many in our culture have done so today. So we worship the creature rather than the creator. They change, and then, and then Paul says they change the truth of God that would be God's design. That would be what God has exhibited. They change it into a lie. The things that are the design of God, they say those are lies. Marriage, lie. One man, one woman, lie. Man and woman themselves, lie. They take the design of God and they, they, they consider it, they label it a lie. And then Paul says, and in doing so, they dishonor their bodies among themselves. They do that with their bodies that is outside of God's design, dishonoring the bodies that God gave them. And this is very common, right, again, in pagan, whether that be uh, the tremendous sexual promiscuity of the pagan religious systems uh, throughout history, or whether that be the cutting of themselves and the tattooing of themselves and, and the mutilating of themselves, all of these things done in the name of religion, all of them dishonoring the body that God gave them among themselves. And within this context, verses 26 and 27 describe these rebellious men who dishonor their bodies as those who pursue vile affections, they leave the natural use of the woman and they burn in lust one toward another. The Bible says, working that which is unseemly. And while many will seek to explain away what they're reading here, there is no ambiguity in this text, Christian. Paul is describing sodomy as a sin against the body, as a sin against the image of God in man, as a direct affront to the knowledge of God in this world, as a sin against the character of God in creation. The sin is also mentioned in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, when it speaks of inheriting the kingdom of God, the idea here is that these are the sins that define them. 
When you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are no longer defined by any sin, even the sins that you are yet struggling with and still committing. You are defined. You are, you are given the name of Christ. You are under the blood of Christ. He, you, your name is his name. When God sees you, he sees Christ in you. You are not defined by your sin. So that even if you're still struggling with a sin that is on this list, even if you steal or, or, or you're covetous or whatever it might be, as it works, as, as you are working through the process of sanctification, your identity is in Christ, but you will lose something of the inheritance of the kingdom of God through the rewards, won't you? Because there, are, there is a loss of reward before the throne of God for those Christians who are continuing in their sin that grace may abound. And so it is not uh, wrong to say that even among the believer, we will fall short of inheriting elements of the kingdom of God as we uh, suffer the loss of reward before the throne on the day of judgment. But make no mistake, the idea here is not that if you commit one of these sins, you are no longer going to heaven. We'll talk more about that in our next uh, point. So we find here a list of various offenses to the character of God. This is one of many lists in the New Testament speaking of this idea. We find a list of sexual sins, one of which here is abusers of themselves with mankind. A statement of sodomy not only being a perversion of God's design, but once again an abuse of the body, which God has called us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 4, to possess in sanctification and honor. One more passage to drive the point home. In the book of Jude, the Holy Spirit inspired Jude to warn about false teachers, men who blasphemed the design of God by perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at the beginning of this warning, we already talked about its cross-reference, its sister passage in 2 Peter 2, right? Talking about uh, Lot being delivered. Jude speaks a little bit more of Sodom itself. And at the beginning of this warning, as I said, Jude gives several examples of historical blasphemies against God in order that he might relate those historical blasphemies to the evil that false teachers bring into the church. And one of the examples of these blasphemies is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, where we read this in Jude 1, verse 7. There's only one chapter in Jude, so Jude, verse 7. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Jude says they gave themselves to fornication and that they pursued after strange flesh, flesh that was foreign to design, flesh that was outside of design, foreign to the intent of the body that God has created us to possess in sanctification and honor. So that we can say unambiguously that as we look at the scripture, sodomy is, biblically speaking, a sin. Now to our second point. First, sodomy is a perversion of God's design and so is inherently sinful. Second, the sin of Sodom, sodomy excuse me, bears many of the same attributes as all other sinful actions. You perhaps noticed when we read the warning in 1 Corinthians 6 that sodomy was listed among many other sins, both sexual, such as adultery and fornication, and otherwise, such as stealing and drunkenness and covetousness and extortion. And this is consistent with the Romans passage as well, where if I had continued reading past verse 27, we would have found a long list of sinful things which Paul goes on to list in the same breath as that of sodomy. Sins of which every single person in this room is guilty. Every single person in this room is guilty of one of the sins on one of these lists that Paul lists. I mean, disobedient to parents is on one of those lists, right? We're all guilty of them. You and I are all born with a sin nature, Christian. And because we have a sin nature, we are predisposed, not biologically, but we are predisposed spiritually to sin. And the sins which you are predisposed to are not necessarily the sins that I'm predisposed to. So that you may struggle with stealing and I don't. But I may struggle with lust and you don't. Maybe you struggle with lying, and I struggle with intemperance. There are things that I am tempted to do that simply don't tempt you. And there are things which you're tempted to do that simply don't tempt me. And this is simply the nature of being in a body of flesh, of being born with a sin nature, of the experiences that we've had, of the personalities that we have, of the things that, that are us, that make us us. 
And the same is true of sodomy. We would not be surprised to believe that same-sex attraction is something which some people struggle with and others do not. That the sin of going after strange flesh, of defiling the image of God and man, and of breaching God's design principles in this way rests in the heart of a certain subset of humanity. Now, when I've taught, as, as even we've talked through it today, reading the Leviticus passage, we use words like abomination before God and, 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 and a defilement. And, and these words naturally conjure up tremendous emotions because they, are, they are, are very, very strong words. And we'll see why it is. We'll see what it, what it is about homosexuality. Actually, we've already talked about what it is, but we'll see all the more so in our final point why it is that, 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 that homosexuality tends to be classified as a greater sin from a certain point of view. But at the end of the day, Christian, sin is sin, Right? And unfortunately, what we've done in this church is, or not this church, what we've done in the church is we have, we have uh, allowed this emotive language to bring us to a place where we see certain sins and we say, well, that's just, that's just a sin everyone does, right? Everyone lies, everyone cheats, everyone steals, and then other sins. And we say, oh, those are the bad ones. And the person that is over here obviously, unrepentantly dealing with uh, his sins, uh, he's, he's not loving his wife, uh, he's, 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 he's a, a liar through and through, and people are like, well, you just gotta, just gotta put up with Bob over there. But then the guy that comes and says, I'm really, really struggling with the same-sex attraction, we say, get out of here, leper. Right? It ought not so to be, Christian. Every heart has sinful propensities. And it is not a sinful propensity for which any man is guilty. It should not surprise us. It should not startle us. It should not even necessarily trouble us deeply when we would, if we see a subset of society that struggles with same-sex attraction because we all struggle with some sin and they're not going to be the same sins. But what is so interesting about sexual sin, not just in our society but throughout history, is how important sexual sin is to a godless culture. How important it is to a godless culture to normalize sexual depravity. And we're not just talking about homosexuality, but we're talking about adultery, fornication, pedophilia, the whole, the whole, the whole thing, right? Every culture has an inherent interest in excusing these perversions in a way that they don't necessarily do other sins. After all, we would never say that because a person is born with a natural desire toward and propensity for the sin of stealing that this means we should excuse stealing as natural and affirm a person's choice to indulge that nature. Well, they were just born that way, so we just got to let them steal. We need, to, we need to change the laws to make sure that, 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 that kleptomaniacs can steal because they're born that way. We don't do that, right? We would never say that because a person is born with a naturally violent temper and a propensity to outbursts of anger, that this means that we should excuse their violence as a natural thing and excuse that person's choices to indulge their nature. We say, no, I'm sorry you have this indulgence in you. Get some counseling, figure out how to control yourself. That's what we say. But society has convinced itself, along with many in the church, that if a person is born with a natural att attraction toward sodomy, toward the same sex, that this means that we should excuse it as natural and affirm that choice to indulge their nature. And this is biblically irrational, Christian. Sin is sin. We are all tempted to sin. We are all struggling with different temptations to sin. And it is not a sin to be tempted. Don't forget that. It is not a sin to be tempted. Our, the Bible tells us that our Savior was tempted in all points like as we, and yet without sin. The problem is not when I am tempted. The problem is when I indulge the temptation and it brings forth sin, when it brings forth in my life sin. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. And that leads us to our final point. That though sodomy is a sin, and though we, want, we need to be careful that we do not come to the point in our society where we look at those who are engaged in and, and, and struggling with 
uh, same-sex attraction and simply treat them as lepers out of hand and reject them out of hand. There is a reason why in the church we will always drift toward wanting to feel that way. We've already talked about the nature of God's design, but there is a unique source and a unique evil to sodomy compared to other sins. And that is our final point, the point that is worth pursuing. The sin of sodomy bears a unique source and a unique evil compared to many other sins. We'll begin with the unique source, and then we'll talk about the unique evil. You say, well, pastor, if it is a propensity in the heart of every man, then why is it that we see it so dramatically in our culture today where we in the West, but we don't necessarily see it in other parts of the world as dramatically, although obviously um, uh, sodomy is everywhere in the world. And that's because sodomy seems to be uh, uh, connected in, in a way to a unique set of cultural conditions. And we learn of this from Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16 tells us of the sin of Sodom. And in that passage, we read this in verse 49. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. God calling um, Sodom and Gomorrah the sisters of uh, Israel and Judah because of where Israel and Judah were at that time with their sinfulness. He says, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. So the Holy Spirit, through Ezekiel, declares that The iniquity of Sodom was rooted in three things. Pride, fullness of bread, and an abundance of idleness. Now, some have taken this to mean that God did not destroy Sodom for the sin of homosexuality. This is one of the ways that they try to explain away homosexuality. They say, aha, instead of that, it was these other things. Um, No, doesn't work. That just does not work. We know that that isn't true because Jude chapter 1 verse 7 makes it clear that God saw the pursuit of strange flesh as so abominable and that's the reason why he judged them with eternal fire. We know because that's what Jude says, that's what 2 Peter 2 says, uh, that's what we see in, in, in Genesis 19. That is not, God did not destroy them for pridefulness of bread and idleness. If so, then every generation would have a culture that needed fire and brimstone. All right. But that doesn't mean we don't receive insight here. Ezekiel 16 tells us that the society of Sodom was a society that was very wealthy. We oftentimes think of these former societies and we think, we think down on them, all oh, those societies where they actually had to you know, farm to live and then and, and, and you go into the fields and you live all day and then you come at night and you sleep so that you can go out in the field and live all day and do the same thing. But those subsistence living cultures, of course, they've always existed. They still exist today. But wealthy cultures that, that, that had graduated beyond subsistence living have also always existed. And Sodom was one of these cultures that had graduated beyond subsistence living. It was a very wealthy culture. They were not a subsistence living culture. Much to the contrary, they were a culture that experienced fullness of bread. They were all full of bread. They, they, had more to, they had plenty to spare. They did not wonder where food was going to come from. Uh, in metaphorical terms, they had a fridge full of food. Of course, they didn't have fridges, but they had plenty of food. They did not have to wake up any day and wonder if there was going to be food there for them. Much to the contrary, they were this kind of a culture. And the Bible says they were also a proud people. And presumably because they were a wealthy people and a proud people, they became an idol People. They had a lot of free time on their hands. And this led them into selfishness. The more money they had and the more time they had, the more they were tempted not to invest it in others, not to strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy, but rather they turned that in their pride toward strengthening themselves, toward more of their own wealth, toward gathering more unto themselves. And so they became less compassionate for the people that are around them. They were proud. They were well-to-do, wealthy, and they had an abundance of free time. And this led them into sexual impurity. And this is one of the interesting through lines of sodomy in any culture, that this sexual perversion... And all sexual perversion, really, whether you want to talk about fornication or sodomy or today even with the transgender movement, 
is uniquely prevalent in cultures which are wealthy, which are idle, and which are proud. A culture which is humble, which must work hard for their daily bread, is a culture which is focused either upon survival or at least they work hard and recognize and appreciate the things that they have. This is why thanksgiving and generosity are so important in your life, Christian, because we are in an abundant, wealthy culture, and if you are not giving of that abundance to others, you are going to become proud, you are going to become selfish, you are going to fall into temptations and snares that you need not otherwise fall into. So a culture which is trying to survive, a subsistence living culture, or a culture which is not subsistence, but which is still living in the the shadow of that time of subsistence, is a culture that prioritizes food, shelter, water, protection, and finally, children. Because these are the things that are needed to live and to thrive. These are the things that are needed either to live or to continue their civilization. And if I'm a survival culture, then there's no time to waste not having kids. It is only in a proud, rich, and lazy culture that gets bored, and then they're bored, they decide in their boredom to indulge the perversions of their nature. There's nothing wrong, so then they have to work up drama in their culture so that they can have something to get incensed about. They have to create a victim class within their culture so that they can have someone to complain about, so that they can have someone to advocate for, and they're gonna ignore, they're gonna drive past all of the poor people that actually need help so that they can go to those people that they've created, the victim class they've created, to convince themselves of their own virtue. Say, wow, pastor, it sounds like you're talking about today. Yeah, because I use drive analogy, right? That was Sodom in their day. That is us in our day. And by the way, that was Greece, and that was Rome, and that was France, and that was Britain in their days also. This is what happens when a culture gets proud, rich, and lazy, unless we have Christ. Then our wealth becomes giving, our time becomes industry, And we remain humble. Now, we're a wealthy culture, Christian. We're not not all necessarily wealthy people, but compared to history and the world, we are all wealthy. God forbid that we would allow that to fall into the tendency of pride and idleness of time and a lack of generosity because that is the recipe Because we're bored and we want something to do. And when humans are bored and they want something to do, they fall into sexual perversion. It's what happens in cultures. This is consistent with what we read in Romans chapter 1. That as a culture more vehemently rejects God's person and God's authority, which is also something that happens far more often in cultures that have advanced beyond survival. Uh, when, when, When you're trying to survive, there's no atheists in foxholes, right? When you're trying to survive, God is a lot more important to people. When you've advanced beyond survival, people say, why do I need God anymore? I have stuff. I have money. I have technology. I don't need God. And then what comes into culture? Well, you elevate something to God because you're going to worship something. And then you fall into sexual perversion. So that the unique source of the sin of sodomy, the re, one of the reasons why it is unique from necessarily other sins that might be on these lists of sins, is that these sexual perversions, and again, not just sodomy, but also fornication, adultery, and such, uh, can fall into these to, the, to this extent as well. These things are sourced in a culture that is proud, rich, and lazy. So that's the unique source. One more thing. Let's talk about the unique evil. I mentioned before that the sin of sodomy possesses a unique threat uh, because of its nature to the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to read you a bit of a a passage here. Ephesians 5, many of you are familiar with it, talking about husbands and wives. In Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 32, the Bible says this. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot 
or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Notice verse 32. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The relationship between a husband and wife, the nature of headship and submission, the outworking of that union in children and family, these things are not random things. Not random in their design, not random in their application. The very foundation of the testimony of Christ and his church in society is a lifelong one flesh union between one man and one woman. Paul says that when God declared in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, that a man would leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife and they too would be one flesh, that that was something that initiated a great mystery uh, that taught of Christ and his church. Marriage is not arbitrary. Marriage is a type. It is a symbol of Christ and his church. Subsequently, this is why any breakdown of marriage is, is a problem in the church. This is why divorce is a problem in the church. This is why uh, uh, the, the, the abusive husband or the abusive wife is a problem in the church. This is why homosexuality is a problem in the church. It is because all of those things break down the testimony of the design, the mystery that was declared going all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 27, that is Christ and his church. So that while it is certainly the case as I said some time ago, that sodomy is a temptation and a propensity for some, not for others. And so this sin is a sin in, in that way similar to others. And, and, and we recognize that so that we do not treat this singular class of people that are struggling in our society as lepers and reject them out of hand and cast them out of our churches when in fact what they need is help if they're willing. Yet simultaneously, we do see in sodomy a unique breach of the prophetic typological design by which Christ is magnified in culture. Even among those who do not regard him, who shake their fist at him. They get married, they stay faithful to their spouse, and they testify of him. They testify of his design. They testify of Christ and his church. The act of sodomy is thus somewhat different than theft or than anger. And not just the act of sodomy, but particularly the normalization and prioritization of sodomy in a culture is a direct affront to the foundational design of God intended to testify of the gospel of Jesus Christ in every culture and among every people. And it is for this reason that the church has historically stood so firm against the normalization of sodomy in society and culture. Because it is already the case that the normalization of divorce has confused the picture of Christ and his church as an indelible union of bridegroom and bride in our society. How much more so as culture denies the very fabric of marriage and of family. So that today as we step out of Genesis 19 verses 1 through 13, we learn many lessons that are increasingly relevant in our cultural climate today. May God help us to orient ourselves rightly to these lessons. Sodomy is a perversion of God's design. It's inherently sinful. We do not need to pretend it's not so, and we ought not pretend it's not so. The sin of sodomy bears many of the same attributes as all other sinful actions. The person who struggles with the sin of sodomy can as much go to heaven as the person who struggles with any other sin. The person who struggles with the sin of sodomy is in as much as a need of help if he will seek unto it with humility and repentance as anyone else with any other sin. And yet there is this uniqueness of source and uniqueness of evil. Source in that we are expected, we would expect to see more of it as our country becomes more godless and proud in our fullness of bread and our idleness and our, freeness, our free time. And second is we, we do recognize that there is unique evil because among, among and within society, it is within the marriage union that there is kind of that first kernel of the testimony of truth that is Christ and his church that testifies to the people of said society. 
May God help us to orient ourselves rightly, not with the intent that we might judge or attack or otherwise impose ourselves upon others. That's not what the church does. That's not what the church is commanded to do. But only so that we might first relate ourselves properly to God's design. And second, so that we can help others who might be confused or frustrated or seeking to orient themselves properly to God's design. And to be quite honest, if we live in, in, in a church context that is ourselves disoriented from God's design, then where are people going to go to find stability and clarity in a world of confusion? So let us stand firmly upon the truths of Scripture. Let us embrace them with understanding and grace. Let us orient ourselves rightly to how they apply to the glory of God for the furtherance of the gospel. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.